Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, so we're reading through Genesis. Um, this is an exciting book for me just because uh, it covers a lot of our history, um, but not just the history of mankind, the history of God's faithfulness. We're well aware that God is a faithful God, that he is a good father, but in order to go to the depths of what that means, we, we look all the way back to the beginning of history and we see how many times mankind really just messed it up beyond what we think should be repairable. And in God's grace, he said, I'm gonna provide a way. Because above all, I want to reconcile mankind back unto me, and I wanna restore Eden the way it was supposed to be before sin entered the world and we all chose to disobey. His heart is to unite that thing that was separated and that was broken that we read about in the first three chapters of Genesis. And so it's a privilege for me to us to walk through this because we're learning our history and God's faithfulness, but we're also learning about our sin, the depths of our sin, the depths of our selfishness, the depths of the way that we want things and God's grace in the middle of that. That even while he he calls us out of our own way of thinking, he knows that shortly after that calling out, we're we're gonna constantly go, yeah, but, but 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 this one thing, and he's gonna say, no, no, Keep coming, fix your eyes on me. And his faithfulness in the middle of our unfaithfulness, it blows, our, it, it blows my mind, it should blow our minds, it should, it should warm our hearts. So this, this book is primarily about studying the depths of the sin of mankind. I think it should help us frame some of the arguments that we're seeing as we watch the news right now, as we, as we watch everything that's going on and around the world, in our country, but, but around the world as well. Genesis is helping us frame how we're supposed to think about these things. Because lots of corners of the world wanna tell you how to think about the news that you're getting. But the word of God commands us to submit ourselves to it and put on the lenses of the word of God and look at what's happening in the world through God's lenses. And that is difficult because it challenges us. And that's what Genesis is doing. It's challenging us to think about the way that we think about the world around us, how we got to where we are and our role in it. So last week, um, we saw how sin entered into the world and then increased throughout the earth over multiple generations. And by the end of chapter six, corruption and violence were the thing that was um, on everybody's flag in the world. It was, it was, I mean, it, violence and corruption and rejection of God and his ways was the most, um, it was the loudest shout from the heart of man over the entire face of the earth. Everybody was on board with this message that you further your agenda through violence and corruption, except for one man. And we're told this guy's name is Noah. Last week we were told that this guy named Noah was blameless and righteous in God's sight. And God told him, I'm gonna flood the earth, purge the earth, and I'm gonna spare you and your family. So I want you to build an ark of salvation. And we see that Noah obeyed. Well, today we're gonna continue that story and find out what happened to Noah and how his faith produced obedience and how those two things kind of work together. And we're gonna pick up the story in Genesis seven. So we'll put the scripture up on uh, the screen so you can follow along. But if you have your Bibles, you're reading your phone, Go ahead and take them out. Turn to Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, and we're going to read through 16. It's the first little beginning of our section, and then we'll pause and we'll, we'll reflect and talk about it. So Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, so this is after he built the ark, and we talked last week about it, it probably took him 70-ish years to build the ark. He said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all of your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. We'll come back to that sentence in a minute. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male, 
and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Now we're gonna continue six for a minute, just pause. There's often a lot of question about whether this is actually historically accurate, that this is a thing that legitimately happened. And a lot of the arguments that you often hear are, could it have even happened? Could you even fit that many animals on the boat? And one of the things I just wanna interject into your mind as you're thinking about this um, is to think about the logistics of how Noah uh, accomplished this um, with the understanding of how the grace of God works. I don't think that Noah spent 70 years going to the corners of the earth and finding all of the little bald eagles and all of the little donkeys and bringing them in. I think that God in his grace sent these animals to Noah, and they just showed up. And I don't necessarily believe that they were all adult animals. Um, if someone were to say to me, like, how in the world could you have, how could your mom, who's only five foot four, give birth to you? Well, I wasn't born this size, right? I grew this size. So the idea of, of your frame of reference for how the ark worked, it was probably a boat filled with a bunch of infant small animals. They take up less space, and the purpose after this flood was to repopulate the earth. So as they grew up, they grew into one of the roles that they had. So the logistics that you may hear as far as the arguments for why this stuff couldn't work um, can actually be answered through just some logic. And I think that that's probably an interesting point that I wanna interject, it doesn't have any any bearing on your spirituality, but I think it might maybe satisfy some questions that you have about how this worked. So we'll pick up in verse six. So Noah was 600 years old. Wow. Could you imagine being 600 years old? That's a lot of years old. When the flood of waters came upon the earth and Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days of them going into the ark, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month on the 17th day of the month, that's pretty specific, huh? On that day, all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons Shem and Ham, Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives and his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life and those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. Now, I've mentioned this a couple times, just another logistical thing. When Moses, who most historians believe wrote the book of Genesis, it was written much later, he records that the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were open. Most theologians believe that according to the account from the first couple chapters in Genesis of creation, what essentially had happened up to the point of Noah was that when God created the earth, he created the earth in a way where um, there was probably just one continent and all the land was connected and there was, this, there was a no concept of rain, like it didn't rain on a regular basis because there was a shield or a covering around the entire earth of water molecules. And that acted almost like a greenhouse in the sense where the, the heat of the sun would come in and it would keep the earth a nice toasty 72 degrees probably. And everything on earth, all the vegetation grew and you didn't have this concept of like seasons, like we know seasons now where there's like no rain and then there's tons of rain. 
And so for 70 years, Noah's building this boat and he's telling people around him, hey, rain is coming and God's gonna flood the earth and nobody has a concept for what this is. You have to believe by faith that God's gonna do what he says he's gonna do, even though you don't have a reference point for what it looks like. And then we're told that the great fountains from the deep burst open and the heavens were opened. And most theologians believe that the way that the flood probably worked was that all of that canopy around the earth was released in an instant and all fell to the earth at the same time. And at that moment, if you look at a map now where the Atlantic Ocean, you look at the trench right, right, that, that separates uh, North America from Europe, for example. If you look across the ocean, there's a huge trench there. It is possible that when Moses is talking about the deep bursting forth, that that was one of the, the motivations for these plates shifting and water rushing from. So what you have for the, from, for the flood is water bursting from below the earth, ripping the continents apart, and at the exact same time, you have all of the, the water in the canopy around flooding at the same time. So you've got water from below and water from the top. Now, I'll come back to that in just a second, but I really wanna dive into what Moses feels like is important for us to understand about this guy named Noah. God declares that Noah was righteous before me in this generation, and I want to ask us this morning why. In a world where sin was in charge and just spewing out of the heart of man, why is it that when God looks across the face of the earth, he looks at Noah and he sees a righteous man before God in this generation? Well, the answer is in Hebrews eleven seven, when um, the writer of Hebrews gives us an outline in the whole chapter of 11 about all the people who are considered people of faith. And what he essentially says is that Noah was considered righteous because he was a man of faith. He believed by faith that when God said, I'm gonna flood the earth, he was actually gonna flood the earth. And because Noah believed what God said was going to happen, it turned into obedience and works, and he, as a byproduct, built the boat. There was proof that he believed God because a boat showed up. He built it with his bare hands. His obedience was a byproduct of his faith. So Noah was not considered righteous because he was a guy who never did wrong things, but in a generation who, fi- who, who put their, uh, fixed their eyes off of God and his ways and excelled in violence and corruption, Noah was a guy who said, look, if God says these things about this world, then I'm gonna follow him and trust him. He essentially said, I believe that God is telling the truth and so I'm gonna do something about what I believe he's telling me the truth about. And that is why Noah was considered righteous. Now, why is that important? Because this is not the last guy that you find in the book of Genesis who will be considered righteous because of his faith. This principle you're gonna see moving forward all the way through Genesis, and all the way through Exodus, and all the way moving up into the New Testament. Another good example of this, and we'll cover in a couple weeks in Genesis 15, but this guy named Abraham. God saw his faith and accounted it to him as righteousness. You see this principle in Genesis 15, 6 with Abraham. It's referenced again in Romans 4, 9. It's referenced in Romans 4, 22. The principle being that God takes faith and records it in his books as righteousness. Your faith is counted as righteousness. For Noah, it looked like believing God was telling the truth about the flood and doing something about it. And for us, faith accounting to us as righteousness looks like believing Jesus is telling the truth about who he is and about our sin and putting our faith in him. This principle starts here and it does not end. Jesus says about himself, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the one who, I'm the only way to the Father. And so if you want to be reconciled with God, you have to repent of your sin and be born again. You have to decide to put your faith in the fact that either Jesus is telling the truth or he is lying or some kind of crazy person. And so you, you by faith, either accept his teachings and put your faith in him and begin to walk in obedience because of that faith that you have, or you reject his claims and you continue to walk in disobedience. 
all the way back from Genesis chapter seven, all the way forward to the New Testament, nothing has changed. Everything is based on faith. From the Garden of Eden until today, our entire relationship before God, the righteousness that we have in him is based on faith. And the question that you have today, as you read Genesis 7, and as you read the rest of the New Testament, the question you constantly have to ask yourself is, do you believe God, and do you obey him as a result? Do you believe what God says about himself? And if you do, what are you doing about it? Now, let's continue looking at Noah's family for a minute, because he took with his family two of every animal, and he took seven pair of every clean animal. Now, why did he do that? Because in the storybooks that we typically read, it's just, you know, two by two, little lions, two elephants, two zebra. But you don't see the seven of the clean animal. Why did he bring those in? Well, he did it because God commanded him to do it, but, he, but why did God command him to do it? Because God knew that after this flood, there would need to be sacrifices made because though Noah was righteous because of his faith, he was still bringing sin with him on the boat. Because of his faith, he was declared as righteous. But when he stepped onto that boat with his family, he was bringing something from that world that lived in his heart with him. Sin would still need to be atoned for. Sacrifices of thanksgiving would still need to be made. And so God made provision for that and he commanded Noah to bring those animals with him on the boat. Now in 7.11 through like 8.19, we get an account of the flood. I'm not gonna read all of that. Um, feel free to go back and read it as you know, some leisure reading. It's, um, it's exciting stuff, you should read it. Uh, but let me summarize what happened here. God flooded the earth by cracking the sky and bursting the deep like we just talked about before. And this idea of a flood, a worldwide flood, falls into two main camps. Okay, my, my understanding of how the flood worked from the, the, the waters above and the waters below, um, I feel like for me that kind of makes the most sense as far as how the flood worked. If you have a differing opinion, that's fine, you can hold that opinion. But there are two kind of um, uh, corners of uh, people who follow the Bible um, that fall into as far as how we view this flood. And this is not considering people who just ignore it and say that this didn't happen. But their sense of a global flood flood, either one, their idea is that it was only really global to Noah. Noah was a man who was locked in a body. He couldn't be everywhere. So his sense of a global flood and that story being told to his kids and his kids' kids and his kids' kids and eventually got to Moses and was recorded, it was not essentially a worldwide flood. It, like America wasn't flooded. It was just the area predominantly around where Noah was. That's one school of thought. The other school of thought is that when the Bible says that it was a flood over the entire earth, that that's actually what it means. It was, it was a flood that, it, that overtook the entire earth. It covered to the top of every mountain. And if you were at, in space on, a, on the International Space Station at the time of the flood, what you would be looking down on, uh, that great blue pearl, was no more land. What you would see over the course of um, a certain amount of days is the earth slowly turned from green and blue to completely blue. Now, I personally um, tend to believe the second school of thought, and I think uh, the reason why I believe that is because I don't, I don't think it was a localized flood, I think it was a global flood because we see evidence everywhere. We find um, there's oceanic fossils in mountains, like the Himalayans. And it's very difficult for me to wrap my head around how those kind of fossils would end up there unless we have some kind of worldwide flood taking place. There's places around the world where you can examine rapid erosion, folded rocks, um, and aside from just the science that to me it makes sense, I think it fits the narrative of what we see continuously throughout the entire Bible as far as this idea of being purged with water and principles like baptism. If we're told that the entire world was corrupt, then it stands to reason to me that the entire world needed to be purged in a baptism of water. 
Water is symbolic in the word of cleansing and washing, and the entire world needed cleansing and washing. And so I believe in what we're seeing here with the flood is God actually baptizing the earth and bringing forth new life in this guy named Noah and his family. For me, when I read this story, this is the way that I see it. And the reason why I read it that way is because when you, for us, we're locked in time. We're thinking, wow, this is something that happened a long time ago. So because it was a long time ago, it does not fit in with the stories of the things that we read about from like the apostles in the New Testament. But if it ever crossed your mind, like what, why in the world did John the Baptist think that in order to prepare the way for the Lord, the best thing he could probably do is to go down to the Jordan River and start dunking people underneath it? Like, where did that concept come from? There are these principles in in all throughout the word of God that teach us things about ourselves and about God that are supposed to help shift our focus of what is right and what is wrong and how we're supposed to see this world. And one fundamental principle about coming to God and understanding how we're supposed to see this world is that you are not fundamentally a good person. You are a broken person. You are born into this world in sin, conceived in it, and from the moment that you step out, your your entire worldview is, this thing is all about me. And if you wanna step into God's kingdom, then you're gonna have to turn your back on that way of thinking. You're gonna have to go into the grave. You're gonna have to die to yourself. And that's why Jesus told us that we have to be born again. Because the old stuff, the old way of thinking, our desires, that stuff has to be put into the ground if you're actually gonna see the new kingdom. So why did God flood the earth? Because in God's timeless mind, this concept of washing his creation of their impurities and their disobedience is not locked in our concept of time. The earth was corrupt and it was time to clean it. So let's look at the timeline of the flood that was found in these verses that uh, through seven through eight, the family entered the ark and seven days later it started raining. The rain continued for 40 days, but then we're told that the water prevailed. So after it stopped raining, the water prevailed over the earth for another 150 days. So they're in the ark, it's raining for 40 days. The ark is floating around in the water. There is no more mountains. All of the land is covered by water. And it's like that for over 150 days, the water prevailed. Well then, for another 150 days, we're told that the water begins to recede. And as it starts to recede, the ark rests on Mount Ararat, which is currently in the country of Turkey and is currently on a mountain that is covered in um, ice 365 days a year. Well, as the water began to recede for 158 days, the earth took 70 days to fully dry and for the water to seep back into the earth. And during that time period, Noah sent out ravens and doves till eventually God told him, all right, it's time to take the cover off of the ark and it's time to release these animals and your family back into the world. So our understanding when we read um, the account of the flood is typically that this was a thing that lasted 40 days. Well, it wasn't. If you add up the amount of time they were in the ark and all the time it flooded, the time where the water was um, uh, prevailing and receding over the earth, Noah and his family and those animals were in that ark for 377 days. And most of us had a hard time staying at home during the quarantine for a week. Imagine what it was like to be locked in a boat with your close family and animals. Some of you are not animal people being locked in a, in a boat for 377 days. And when you exit that boat, you're it. There is no more mankind anywhere else on earth. It's just your family. Now think about Noah was 600 years old when he entered into this ark. Think about all the habits that he had developed in just being around with people 
in the conversations, the habit of being able to just go to markets and purchase food, the economy of buying and selling and bartering, all of that that he had lived with for 600 years is gone. Everything completely started over. That story picks up in 8.20. So let's go to Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. So Noah gets off of the ark after 377 days. And the first thing he does in verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be your food. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. And you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require, and, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So let's jump back up to the end of eight. Noah's first act on dry land was building an altar and making a sacrifice. Now you're gonna see this tradition continue a lot throughout Genesis because anytime there was a monumental moment where God did something in the life of a person, that person wanted to build um, some kind of altar to it so that they would not forget because as humans, we are prone to forget. So the people of our, our, our faith, the people who we would call, these are our ancestors, their tradition was when God did something profound to build a monument about it so that they would not forget God's faithfulness. Now that tradition, because sin lives in the heart of man, would eventually always turn on the person so that the monument was not about God, the monument became God. And that tradition has not stopped. Still today, many of you, you, you don't go in your backyard and pile rocks to the things that God has done in your life. But all of us, if we're not careful, are guilty of God doing tremendous things in our life and us declaring that as the highest watermark in our life that we will always measure everything else moving forward against. God did this amazing thing back at this church when I was young, and I'm just trying to find a church like that again. God had these amazing people speak into my life and I'm just trying to find that again. Is it possible that God's trying to ask you to be that person in someone else's life? This desire in the heart of man to create monuments to the great things that God does so that we don't forget is a biblical principle because we do forget. The greatest monument for us, the reason why there's a cross on the stage, is because we are prone to forget what this Sunday morning thing is all about. It's about him and an empty tomb. That's why we are here. We are not here for you to have a good time and drink good coffee and have a good experience. We are here because this man died on a cross like this, was sacrificed, gave his life for us, and then rose from the dead three days later. That is why we surrender. And that is why we rejoice. The problem is that this thing stops reminding us about what we need to know about ourselves. And if we're not careful, things like this and buildings and stained glasses and pews become the thing that we seek most. We're no, no longer looking for a man. 
because that man is now just a symbol. And so we're looking for the symbols and the monuments that, oddly enough, we craft, we build, we make, we shape. And when those things become God, we're guilty of crafting and shaping and molding God in our image and not surrendering to who he really is. So what needs to change when we do that is the image, not our hearts. Now, when he did this act, one of the first acts as he stepped off the boat was to make a sacrifice. The interesting thing about the sacrifice was how much it actually cost him to make the sacrifice. Because it, it, it's quick to, it, it's easy to forget the idea that this, this sacrifice is unique because there's not a whole lot of animals left on the earth to make sacrifices with. And so what's happening here is Noah is taking the things that God told him and he's sacrificing them. He's, he's killing them. And what he's essentially saying is by giving these things to you, I can't use these things to repopulate the earth. And as we dwindle down these sacrifices, we're really only left with just these two other things left. And if these two things don't follow your design and order to reproduce and create more things, then eventually I'm gonna run out of animals to sacrifice and I can't walk in obedience. But all of that is out of my mind. So the simple act of taking the lives of these animals and sacrificing them is a step of Noah by faith saying, I'm going to give you these things knowing that it may put me in a position where I can't even provide offerings to you anymore. So in the, in the act of me giving an offering, you're going to have to produce things for me to continue to do this. So the very act of me sacrificing unto you is dependent on you giving me the ability to sacrifice back unto you. That's the principle of faith, and that's how this whole thing is rooted. Everything in this book is rooted on this concept of faith. I trust you. But the question today, where does that faith come from? It comes from him. He grants you a measure of faith, and you decide where to put that faith. And some of us have put that faith in the world systems, and we're depending on that thing to be our guide and show us our way. But that's not the divine order of things. Jesus comes to us and and, and he asks us to put our faith in his claims, the faith that he gave us, put that faith in his claims and surrender our lives for what he says. So Noah sacrificing these animals is him saying, I'm grateful and I, will believe, and, and I believe that you're going to multiply so that I can continue this process of sacrificing. Because now I'm at the point now where I'm killing off all the things. There's no more things to sacrifice. There's no more clean animals to sacrifice. So you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to do a thing that I can't do. I'm gonna have to put my trust in you to repopulate the earth. This concept of faith is the foundation for all sacrifices in Genesis, and it should be the way that we think about um, uh, sacrifices in our own life. Things like giving, giving of our actual finances, giving of our time, giving of our talents. It is so easy for us to say, well, if I give my time to this thing that God has told me, then I won't have that time to do the thing that I want to do. And if I spend my money on this thing that God told me to give to, then I won't have my money to spend on things that I want. This is the same principle all the way through. The idea is in your giving, your sacrifices, you are saying by faith, I'm trading in my thing to give it to you because I know that you have the ability to multiply things. And though even though I don't have that time and that money anymore, I'm giving it through faith that you're going to reproduce it, and then what you'll find is that God will redeem and bless and increase your time and your finances and everything else. That's, that's how this principle works. When you step out and say, I'm giving it away, what he does is he presses it down, he shakes it together, and he returns it running over in ways that you never thought possible. Now, the problem with this is that this concept has been perverted within the church, and the moment I start talking like this, you're immediately thinking, oh, that's the prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about driving beamers and owning planes. 
What I'm talking about is the principle of faith, of saying, everything I have is yours, and you will see fit to use it how you want. And what I will find when I surrender it is that I will reap a harvest and fruitfulness in ways that I did not even think was possible. That's the beauty of the way God works. This offering was pleasing to the Lord, and we're told that when the Lord smelled it, he was pleased. Now, he's not actually pleased with the smell of burnt flesh. What he was pleased with was the smell of faith. That when he smelled Noah's offering, he smelled Noah's faith. Faith produced the ark. Faith resulted, as we see in the beginning of nine, a new covenant. God saying, I'm never going to flood the earth again. It resulted in animals now becoming food. It resulted in blood becoming a symbol of life and that we are supposed to honor that life. Faith resulted in fruitfulness because the last command is go and multiply. All of these things are byproducts of Noah's faith. Faith was the catalyst for all things moving forward in this world. And what mankind puts their faith in, whether God or this world or themselves, is the question that we wrestle when we, reach, when we read through this. Would they have faith in God? Would we have faith in God? Would we trust him with our things because we see ourselves as stewards and he's gonna reproduce them? Or do we feel like we've gotta give God a hand, hold on to them and invest them wisely to produce things that he can't do on his own? This, again, hasn't changed. Everybody in the world is putting their faith in something, and your actions prove where that faith, faith lies. And I think that that's the relationship we should walk away with and understand today. It is good for us to say, okay, I understand and I see how all this has to do with faith. But your faith always produces some kind of work or obedience. So if you want to really know where your faith is, Look at where you're working. Look at the fruit of what your faith is producing. Look at your calendars. Look at your checkbooks. Look at the words that are coming out of your mouth. You can't do that. Listen to the words that are coming out of your mouth. Go through and read the things that you're posting on your timeline, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Those things, Jesus tells us that the mouth speaks what's in the heart. So how do you know what's in your heart? How do you know that you're not being deceived when you think, well, I'm a man of faith, but I'm not actually a man of faith? Then you look at the works that your faith is producing. That's what John the Baptist told Pharisees. Don't just repent, but bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because your faith, wherever it's placed, is going to produce something. Now let's go to verse eight, chapter nine, verse eight. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. He's talking about a rainbow. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So when light hits water molecules, it will produce something that will be a sign to remind you I'm not going to flood the earth again. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all all flesh on the earth. Now, I'm really partial to this scripture. This promise is really unique to me. Because today, so, so God set the rainbow in the sky as a promise to never again flood the earth. And all of us on here, I would venture to say, have, have seen a rainbow before, like a legitimate rainbow in the sky. Some of you have seen double rainbows. 
full on double rainbow across the sky. But the idea of all of us in this earth, in, in your lifetime, seeing a rainbow, my guess is that when you see it, your immediate response is, oh, cool, a rainbow. Hard stop, that's it. Most of us, we don't look at a rainbow and think, oh, praise God, we're not getting flooded again. But that reaction was not the reaction that I imagine Noah's family had. Now, follow me. Noah's family had not seen rain before. And the moment that it started raining, it produced a worldwide flood where every living creature on planet Earth died with the exception of the animals that were in that ark. So imagine what it would have been like for one of Noah's sons or Noah's grandsons to be out in the field one day and all of a sudden hear a crack of lightning and thunder. Every single time a drop of water fell from the sky for probably the next 10 generations, there was fear in the heart of man. Is he gonna do it again? Is this the big one or is it gonna happen again? Because it happened once. That would have been the fear in the heart of every single human being living on the face. Oh no, he's gonna do it again. Because you see the rain? It happened the last time. This is exactly how it started last time. It would have triggered every single human being on earth. He's gonna do it again. He's unhappy with us. Maybe I should have done some more things. So God knew that mankind was gonna do that, so he created a covenant and a promise in the sky. And he said, every time you see the rainbow, I want you to know that I remember my covenant and I'm not going to flood this earth ever again. This is a symbol of my promise. So when you hear the crack of thunder and your immediate response is to start being afraid, oh God, this is, he's gonna do it again. I want you to, to not grab a hold of that fear. I want you to grab a hold of the promise. I want you to fix your eyes on the sky, look towards me and remember that I already promised I was not gonna do this. Now, why is this important to us? Because I want you to think for a moment the things in your life that trigger you to fear. Think about sitting at your desk at work on your computer and you hear the footsteps of your boss walking by and you know that he's been unha and unhappy with your work and you think, is this the big one? Is he gonna let me go today? Things haven't been good in the company. We haven't made a lot of money in the last few months. Is, is he coming to let me know that this is my last day? Maybe for some of you, it's a call from doctor or maybe for some of you, it's your kids. You get a call from the school. Is this... Am I gonna to have to talk to the principal again about my child? We've got so many things in our life that push us to fear and trigger us. God knew this, and so when Christ walked the earth, he made promises to us. One of them, that would be equivalent to like the way the rainbow would have caused Noah's family to not fear, would be when Jesus said in John 14, 27, look, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, do not be afraid. And we read that and we think, okay, all right, I shouldn't be afraid, but this thing, you don't know, the last time thunder happened, the last time I got this phone call, and Jesus says, yeah, I, I understand what happened last time, but I said a promise. And so you either trust the fear or you trust the promise. You either grab hold of the fear and the worry or you grab hold of the promise. Now we are heirs of this inheritance, but we still struggle to walk in light. And in this struggle to walk with light, coincidentally, we aren't the only ones that struggle with this. Noah struggled with this. He inherited the, a great covenant that God outlines in uh, Genesis chapter nine. He inherited an, an entire new life and was told to go forth and multiply. But shortly after that entire story, Noah begins living like the men that God just destroyed. Let's, this is where we're gonna to finish today. Go to Genesis chapter nine, look in verse 20 through 29. So after all of this, after God purging the earth, baptizing it, cleansing it, saving Noah and his family, Noah, verse 20, began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, 
saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan or your descendants. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived another 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. So shortly after the flood, Noah became a man of the vineyard. He made wine, he got drunk, and he exposed himself to his entire family. Now this is the perversion and excess that plagued the world before Noah. This is the reason why God saved Noah. He saved Noah from this, not to this. He didn't purge the earth so that Noah could go right back into the kind of things that led to the corruption of the entire earth in the first place. This behavior was sin and it was considered a shame. In the, in, in the Old Testament, we're reading through this, every time you see nakedness, it is the equivalent of great shame, embarrassment, sin. And what Ham did to his father when he saw the sin and shame was to expose him to mock him. And his brothers Shem and Japheth decided to cover the sin. And this is the two contrasts. And you see this all throughout the Bible, these two um, warring sides, light and dark, evil and righteous, God's ways, man's ways. Ham is a reflection of the earth's desire, the, man, the heart of mankind to expose each other for the purposes of shame and embarrassment and ridicule. And Shem and Japheth reflect God's desire to wanna to cover the sin of man, atone for it. Noah's response was to curse his son, Ham, and speak blessings over Shem and Japheth. And when we hear that word curse and blessing, we also think that it's some kind of like magic power, that what he's doing is he's like, he's speaking a curse and there's some kind of like, I don't know, some kind of weird voodoo inside of that. A curse and a blessing in this text is declaring a truth. That's what a curse and a blessing is. It is not a saying, all right, I'm going to instill you with wickedness and by my words, I'm going to now um, instill you with some kind of light and I'm gonna speak darkness into you. What, it, what a curse and a blessing is in this text is reflecting a truth. And what he's saying is that Ham, if this is a life that you wanna live, if you wanna be the kind of guy who, who revels in ridicule and exposing people and walking in wickedness, this is gonna set you and all of your descendants against God for all eternity. If this is the path you want, this is what you're gonna get out of it. And Shem, Japheth, if you choose the path of blessing, if you choose the path of covering, of trying to cover shame and not embarrass and ridicule, then what comes from that is blessing. Noah was in his curse and his blessing, exposing his boy's hearts and telling them what would come of the way that they were choosing, choosing to walk. Now, through all of the cleansing and all of the sin that was still present in the heart of mankind, we walk away with some very interesting um, realizations from the flood narrative. First is that to redeem mankind, it would take more than a flood. To redeem mankind, it would take more than changing everything about the world. To redeem mankind, it would take Jesus washing away our sins, taking the punishment for us, and us putting our faith in him, which he would call being born again. Now, this flood, we've seen that there is a, uh, there is a, a narrative within this story that reminds us that um, walking with God has always been about faith, putting your faith in God and not this world or yourselves or the things that you find in the world. 
We also see that God's faithfulness through this story is more dependable than anything that the world could offer. So if you're gonna put your faith in something, put your faith in God. But I think the biggest takeaway in reading the story of Noah is that even when God purged the world and brought new life through it, there was still sin in it. The thing that we need most is not another new world. The thing we need most is not new, different circumstances. The thing we need most is not for things around us to change. The thing that we need most is something on the inside of us to change, and that is Christ in you. So through all of the stories of this guy's faith, it ends on a very low, somber note because he brought with him the same thing that God was purging. So what's the hope in the story? The hope in the story is that it's never, redemption is never about changing the things around you. Redemption is always about changing you. And that is why Christ died, to give us the Holy Spirit to fill us, to ransom us, to, to pay the penalty of our sin, to bring us to a place where we can stand before God and not say, I'm here because everything around me finally changed and I'm good. I'm here because I was part of the problem and you fixed me. And I pray that that's the takeaway that we find today. We don't interject ourselves and say, well, I'm like a Noah and I'm the only righteous person in a whole world full of sinners. You're not Noah. You're one of the people who drowned in the flood. What we need most is death and resurrection, not different worldly circumstances. Amen? Let's pray together. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.